Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Story Show. And today... Well, let's just say that we are recording this on Inauguration Day. I think we should just say that. Do we have to say that? I feel like there's a, a sort of a mood. A mood. On the day. Okay. A kind of, And it's a kind of, um, it's a threshold moment, you know, in, in, into the darkness, but a threshold. I, I didn't really pre-plan this. Which isn't showing at all. <laughs> so. <laughs> I've stunned you into silence. No, I think, uh, you know, I think that. We've had a lot of conversations about this moment. I think there's been a lot of denial about this moment. And I'm going to just drink to denial right off the bat. And uh, and actually, before we started talking about any of this, I was thinking again about Aya de Leon, the conversation we had with her last episode. And also, I just want to encourage people, if you haven't gone to see her blog, she's actually got uh, a... Uh, coming out of, well, she doesn't call it denial, but it's sort of like, okay, what we were hoping would happen didn't happen, and what do we do next on her blog? It's like plan B rather than denial. Right. So maybe sort of the political morning after pill. <laughs> I think she would like that. Yeah, I have to say, if you didn't listen to that interview, it's just so inspiring, and it's really, especially in this moment. I'll just say one more thing about the the moment, which is, um, so I went to my bar class, and on the way, I turned on the radio and um, got to hear Pence sworn in. And so then I thought, well, good, at least I'm going to be in bar. I don't know, you know. And and then she was playing Bob Dylan while we were doing, like, glute exercises. So basically, I was like, I'm listening to the Nobel Laureate in Literature while doing, like, butt thrusts while this reality TV show disaster is being sworn in. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was kind of a moment. And Bandit had something to say about that, but I think we'll let that. Yes. For those of you who don't know, we often do this with a somewhat needy dog in the background. So Bandit. That is our love, Bandit. Well, today, beyond the inauguration and getting our feelings processed, we are going to have uh, two main topics. And the first one is about arrogance. And not the Donald Trump kind. Right. Another kind, an important creative arrogance. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to talking about that. And then the other is, is something Angie found um, called the Cult of Dunn Manifesto. So we will share the Cult of Dunn Manifesto and discuss. Yes, and it's always interesting when you find something that you find that, that you think is interesting, but you don't know anything about the actual people who made it. Even though one of them shares a last name with, right, or a middle, second to last name with our family. True. So that's what we're on about today, but we would like to start with, hey, Elizabeth, what are you working on right now? You know, I just happen to have had like a, a perfect work day, almost like the universe said, well, you know, if you can't change the world today and you're going to change the world tomorrow, why don't you go ahead and have a really good writing day today? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. So I woke up, you know, five-ish, and I wrote three blog posts. The first is called A is for Arrogance, in keeping with today's theme. Um, and they were just really fun to write. Just, you know, that kind of like flow writing that surprised me and went beyond what I would have planned to write. And, um, I don't know. They're kind of weird, but I just love them. And then, you know, after the rest of the morning happened and all of that, and post the Nobel laureate 
butt thrusting activities. <laughs> I love shocking you. You better keep drinking. Um, I went and sat in the cafe and I um, wrote a bunch of new stuff because I really have to get this act one together kind of like today and print it out. So I just had to write. And so I just told myself, like, write badly, do whatever it takes, just paste it together. It, you know, it's not about the writing at this point. It's about is the plot working. And um, and it was fun. You know, I actually really enjoyed it. I had to kind of force myself to sit and actually read the stuff that I've read three million times and I'm kind of sick of. And once I slow down and actually read it, I'm, I'm less sick of the specifics of it than I am of it in my head, the kind of Xerox, multiply Xerox copy of it in my head. So, um, so I spent a couple of solid hours working on that, and that felt really great. How about you? What are you working on? Well, I want to say your comment about you know going out and changing the world tomorrow put me in mind of a study I'd read about where people who were like, you know, I'm going to start a diet on Monday actually tended to eat or drink more uh, the day before um, because they were giving themselves credit for work they've already done. Mm. And so uh, just to think about your political stance on <laughs> I'll save the world tomorrow. But <laughs> I'll, I'll chew on that. Yeah, you chew on that. Uh, I am working on a million things, not the least of which is... You know, this product, I had an amazing meeting with my board folks for our school uh, that I felt very excited about, um, and there are a lot of things that came out of that. Any lessons for our writer writer audience, writer-reader audience? I don't know that it would be applicable to other people, but it is interesting to, if you're a person who's having a hard time finding time, one of the things you might look at is you know, who are you seeking permission from to take up that space? And mm -hmm. it might not be about the time at all. So, mm -hmm. um, and we can talk more about that later. But basically for me, I realized that I kept wanting to make sure everybody was in agreement with me <laughs> before I moved forward, which is a great thing for a, a board president to want to <laughs> do. But nothing gets done if you start there. So the idea really is you create something and then if you really need buy-in, you then give people a draft to work with, and then they can come back and say, you know what, this is where I need something. But if you were asking everyone to start whole cloth, it's a really hard way to move a group forward. That, and, to, and to move a manuscript forward, and right? To I move mean, it's a an manuscript. exact parallel. Yes. And, you, and in a way, you, you have to go back to your initial vision once you get the feedback on a manuscript, right, mm -hmm. and probably on a board issue as well, you have to know what you were kind of hoping for or trying mm -hmm. for so that when you're making changes, you know, they make sense to you or they're, you're willing to consciously make the changes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Great. Yeah. So that was great. And also re-engaging with the film and, and feeling excited about that. So those are the things that I'm working on. Yay. Good. Well, let's talk about arrogance, shall we? Well, let, I, let's. So I have been on about this this week because I heard um, on another podcast called the 10 Minute Writers Workshop, and we will link to it in our show notes because we're that kind of sharing podcast. No, we're not. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should do a little posting of just facial expressions. Yes. But anyway, um, uh, Jonathan Lethem. That's how he says it. Lethem. Oh, I've like, been walking around saying Lethem for years. I was saying years. Lethem too, but today when I re-listened to that part for this, he said Lethem. So like lethal, but with an M. Mm. Jonathan Lethem, author, 
he'll be in the show notes too. He talked about how you have to have this kind of outsized vanity, especially for a beginning writer, in order to create something out of nothing. And um, it's absurd and it's silly and um, and yet you can't really do it without that. So you have to sort of, I don't know, do it. You have to do it. And then it gets deflated and you know when you give it to someone else. So, so what did this do for you? Well, so I was kind of at the nadir of struggling with this revision. And um, I had had a lot of kind of beautiful arrogance during the writing of it, during my own private, you know, early morning dream writing, just feeling really good. And also my readers had really loved it. And so it just felt like this is this is it. I'm doing it. And um, and then when I got my agent's notes, which were really reasonable and had lovely things to say, I just completely deflated my arrogance deflated and, and partly, you know, the market, the kind of the state of the market as she's noted it right now, um, that, you know, everything has to, you sort of have to hit everything out of the ballpark, right? So there is no mid-list anymore. Whatever it was, I was so deflated. And it gave me permission to start faking arrogance. And the truth is, it's a, it's a much easier place from which to write. And it's pleasurable to kind of imagine you're doing something original and exciting and important I mean then to think I'm doing something that like well who needs another book in the world and you know well you know I ask because one there's actually some overlap with what we're we'll be looking at here at the cult of done manifesto but it actually put me in mind of artists from sort of the Bef- you know, before the Renaissance, middle, middle age artists, uh, middle ages, <laughs> not middle age, middle ages. I like middle aged artists. Um, because, you know, prior to a certain point, people just didn't sign their work, right? You just, you didn't get that kind of personal credit for your work. And it made me think uh, about the metaphors that we use to help ourselves get to where we want to be. And, like what? Well, you're using this idea of the value or the importance of arrogance, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly we can look back and see the many artists who maybe helped Michelangelo uh, sketch and paint the Sistine Chapel and whose names are not attached. But there might be like a, a different, it's not a, maybe an ego. But, but before that, okay. but before that, okay. it's, a, it's a confidence in your competence. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so arrogance is an interesting word, and it's one that he chose, and that's why we're using yeah, yeah. it. But when I, th- you know, I'm the devil's advocate person. So that's when you cool. were talking about arrogance, I just was immediately thrown to people who were creating amazing works of art and not having personal credit for it. But I just want to say, I mean, imagining, and maybe you're saying it's pre-Michelangelo's workshop or whatever, but, you know, there you are, you're working for this incredible yeah, master. Yeah, it's totally pre because it's, uh, okay, but let's just imagine even this anonymous person right. working for my client. So there's there's a, there's an, an, a sort of a presumption of an absence of arrogance in being the anonymous person who's drawing, you know, the toe of God mm-hmm. on the Sistine Chapel for Michelangelo to color it in. Okay, so I just want to say that sounds like a book. A whole book? Yep, about the guy who painted the toe the of God. The toe of God. The toe of God, maybe that's the title. But the, here's the thing. Yeah. I think that person could be fantastically arrogant and and maybe oh there's like some whole way in which that's the whole thing is like are you going to sort of be like 
I work for this master, you know, Michelangelo. The well, Pope, that's a bad God. example. I want I want to kind of step back because you think about the people who did those incredible uh, illuminated manuscripts. Okay. And I am sure that people were like, I'm, I am the best illuminator of manuscripts ever. I'm sure on like some level, you were human. We have this thing where we look at our value. But culturally, it's a different thing. It's a different time. And I think um, looking at how you create a metaphor so one of the metaphors, right, is about the muse, right? So you're either you're inspired, right? The breath of God inspiring right. you. So it's not about you. It's not about whether you are able to do it, but you have this thing coming from somewhere mm-hmm. else. Or that works about the same for me, and I can slot it in with about the same ease and fakery. Okay. You know? But I'm just saying that I think that for a lot of different people, it, it may be hard to take on the word arrogance. Mm-hmm. And that if we sort of unpack the idea of arrogance, but say instead, you have a metaphor for the work that you're doing as having value. I think it's no coincidence that at this day and age, uh, arrogance is the idea that people come up with because it's talking about us having a particular value as a person because of what we create. And and I would just say, I'm not thinking value, I'm thinking ability. That's the only thing I will say. I'm not thinking other people are going to one day say, you are amazing, but but the fantasy is... But we don't like pe- to hear that right now. Well, that's all good. But the <laughs> fantasy is other people are going to one day say, this thing that you made is amazing. And and I, that's why I'm just as happy to have it be... But you're still attached to it by God. God. Right? It's still you. You're still attached to it by a label. Well, but then, you know, who am Like, I? what if, you know, our kids are asking us these kinds of questions all the time. What if, by writing your book, you could save Bandit's life? Would you rather finish your book and have it be imperfect or have Bandit die? <laughs> you just looked so much like Leo when you're asking me that. <laughs> and it's just like, it's such that kind of cone. Yes. K-O-A-N, yes. right? Yes. Um, obviously... The idea of finishing my book, having it be imperfect, and saving Bandit's life is fantastic because I never think I'm going to do anything better than finishing an imperfect book. And actually, my arrogance doesn't even think I'm going to be doing anything better than finishing an imperfect book. And even the books I adore that I think are true arrogance-worthy arrogance works of genius um, you know, are, are not perfect. And they're not even... That's the thing about the novel and why I think I love the novel is that it's not about, it's not a thing of perfection. Bandit, what's your thought? <laughs> All right, we're not going to have a lot of dead air while we wait for his answer. No. So, uh, anyway, how, now here, let me just throw it to you for a minute, because I think you are a person for whom the word arrogance might be chagrin-inducing. Yes, it's deeply, deeply, deeply... Um, Humiliating? No, it's like it falls out of my little value set um, to go that direction. So, what would you? What would you? What would? What would? And that's why I go to the metaphor. Yeah, but it's not going to be channeling God either. So, what's your? What's your metaphor for the God channel? (laughs) Um, Well, my metaphor that I am working on right now, and Mm -hmm. actually going back to the board meeting. 
is is this piece about waiting for other people to either care or like it or participate or do it right you know so i think that for me like i have that thing about i want to do it right um and finding i haven't consolidated the metaphor i think i'm still in that kind of uh, post epiphany phase where i've not been able to kind of boil it down to a simple sugar coated you know maxim but it has to do with you moving forward with yes. some kind of confidence in your own direction and then letting people come in and 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 engage with it yeah because you know i value collaboration anyway mm-hmm. that's a big part of who i am and how i want to be in the world mm-hmm. and so i think that realizing I have to create something before people can actually know what they're interacting with. I am always, even even down to the language of asking people to work with me, um, I always start with, like, I have this random idea that probably won't happen, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, maybe I could pay you to do this. <laughs> and people are like, oh, my God, it's starting to sound like you couldn't pay me enough. <laughs> um, and then, really, what I would like to do is, like, throw something out and have someone say, you know, this is interesting, and I can see ways it would be better, and I would like to work with you on that. Or even, oh, I love this about what you're doing, and it reminds me about this that I want to do, and can we, like, find a place where we can do, do these things? Exactly. Together. Yeah. You scratch my back, I scratch your back, but but more And co- then, again, I think that the, the kind of maybe the um, Renaissance art workshop is not a bad... Uh, metaphor in the sense that uh, there's a complete understanding and space that work is part of it, that you don't start as a master uh, in, in certain skill sets. You may have masterly visions, but you do need to have certain things in place and, and to apprentice find you need to apprentice yourself and you need to find a place where you can and then eventually, if you have a great group of collaborators on whatever kind of project, you will be trading off the master hat. Mm-hmm. So, And are you willing to wear the master hat? Well, I think I have to when I'm in the situation that I'm in right now, which is that, okay, I'm, I'm reaching out to people to want to work with me on this project, but which is the film. And if I don't wear the master hat, if I don't behave as though I already know what I'm doing... And that's and that's something you know when we segue into that the cult of done the cult of done um, you know I like the idea of pretending I know what I'm doing I did a thing with Rona who we previously talked to Coach Rona Coach on Rona episode something early and you know thinking about the physicality of how you feel certain things and so she was talking about a TED talk where. Uh, you know, your body position feeds into your confidence. And if you're curled over a chair, you are not going to feel confident. So when I thought about the times that I've been really productive or able to move forward, it was that I was either out walking around dictating or I had taken my chair away from my desk and I was dictating to my computer, but I could pace back and forth and check back in and see very clearly what I had said and what was being captured. So for me, there's definitely a physical aspect to feeling confident. And so looking at your posture and the way that you are in the world uh, is also a way to kind of connect maybe intentionally with what you're calling arrogance. 
Yeah, so let's just do do a few takeaways here because you're talking about the the physicality, the using your body as a way to get into that kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, one, and then another big thing that work, works for me is that early morning dream state, right? That, that I love so much, and just so that you're you know we're always confident as dreamers. We're, we never think I can't I can't dream that. I don't know what I'm talking about, right? We just create it, boom, and it can be completely wrong, and we don't care. And so, although we often edit when we wake up in the morning, we often yeah. go, you know, it was my mom's house, but. It wasn't my mom's house. Right. And we... But even... But we're not kind of like, it should have been. It's like, it wasn't. It wasn't. We're kind of interested in that. We're kind of interested in what we... How we morphed it and what that might mean and how that has significance and not kind of... It wasn't ever a mistake. It was creation. Right. I think. Okay. So, okay. So, dreaming, physicality... what else? Uh, taking responsibility, actually, I think is one of the things you're talking about, which is exciting to me to think about is another iteration of this is taking responsibility for this book on behalf of a reader. And one of the things that you and just to go a little deeper with exactly what you're saying, yeah. um, talking about when you do like copywriting or marketing or whatever, they always have you do this avatar. And the avatar is who's your ideal customer or who is going to be the person that, you know, will be most likely to buy your product. Right. And rather than thinking about it in that somewhat crass way, I think a lot of people have a hard time accessing the value they might be providing. But I think for every book, and again, this is, you know, really true from genre fiction all the way through the most literary, for every book, there's somebody who needs that book. Mm -hmm. And I... I'm really intrigued with the exercise of really making real an avatar that is the person who's waiting for your work. Whether it's an essay or a blog post or whether it's your novel, your work does have the chance to make somebody's life significantly better. And I just want to say, to build on that, that when I read novels... Even though I sometimes when I'm deep in the writing, I can't read novels because I'm too spun out or whatever, um, you know, in these little pockets. But when I read novels, it reminds me how much I love to read novels. And it's a different pace. You know, Annie Dillard says no one ever watched television because they were or no, no one ever read a book because they were too lazy to turn on the television. Right. Like. You, you read a book, there's, there's, there is sort of an intentionality and, a, and a, a slowness to it, to this, you know, and it's incredible. I mean, it's just one of the most important things to me in the world. And it encourages me to create, uh, you know, books, mm-hmm. right? But it's, and when I step out of that, it feels like, oh, the world's really fast and it's sound bites and it's, nobody's got any attention for anything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, why do this thing? Right. So, yeah, I mean, that would be one thing that I would say accessing that arrogance is rather than being, you know, we're calling it arrogance, but accessing that justification that I think we all need because we have these voices about our own irrelevance and the importance of almost everything else besides our work. (laughs) If you humanize the recipient and you had this experience with Shy Girl, right? Like you had people contact you. And talk about the impact that book had on their lives. Uh, particularly teenagers, right? I mean, that was... But it it's that you impacted somebody's life. Right. And I think what's true is that... Uh, sorry, man. <laughs> uh, well, I think what's true is, you know, adults may not be quite as connected to their emotional response and want to write to an, uh, an author at this point. But 
if you're, for me, if I make that person real, one, it's a lot easier because I have a voice that I want to talk to that particular person with. And uh, when I'm feeling lost or, or sad, knowing that person is waiting and having a concrete, that, there's that picture of that person who is waiting for me to finish this work so that they can have the book they need. Right. I have a question for you about that, but yeah. I want to say something else before I forget, which is also about that, which is I'm thinking of the people who impacted me as a reader and a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and f- funnily enough, I'm thinking of, um, let, let's look at this pairing. For example, Dennis Johnson mm-hmm. from 25 years ago and Maggie Nelson from you know last 10 year. minutes ago. <laughs> and they're both people who wrote things that made me say, you can do that. You can do that. Like you're allowed to do that. And, um, and part of it was that you, that you can create an expression on the page of something that is really true. feels really true for me, but I've never seen represented. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's really inspiring me right now. I'm sort of thinking, how can I nurture in myself a willingness to see and recognize and articulate and write about things that I've never seen articulated and written about, you know, how can I even recognize them, right? How can I even read them in my own life if I, ha- if I haven't seen them sort of out there as stories? Mm-hmm. And, and how can I sort of, I don't know, that work is just amazing yes. to me. It's, yes. And so anyway, just, just another level of, kind right. of what's, what's possible. And also just to say one of, Almost every introduction to the beginning of an Oz book, except for the first one, is a letter from L. Frank Baum saying, well, I wasn't going to write another one, (laughs) but then I got so many letters from so many readers. And people were sharing plot ideas with him. People were sharing... You know, what they wanted to see. It was sort of, you know, we think of fan fiction now and and all of that kind of stuff and social media. But, you know, in 1901, a kid somewhere in the middle of nowhere was writing a letter to a guy in Hollywood, which is where he was, uh, asking about what they would like to see in the next adventure about their favorite character. And, you know, he might have stopped his writing of this fantastic and wonderful series if he hadn't had concrete readers who were saying to him. And I think, you know, we don't, we don't have the luxury in in our early work to have that response. And so that's, hence the arrogance, right? Hence, (laughs) it is not arrogance. But I, to me, I'm like, yes, hence the arrogance. And to you, you're like, hence the self-belief that is not arrogance. Yes, the uh, humility to the work. All right, well, let's segue then from, we have this vision. I also want to just reading. clarify, I was raised Catholic, so if there's any questions about that particular <laughs> worldview and how that intersects, we can talk about that on another episode. Yes, religion and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, so you stumbled upon the Cult of Dunn Manifesto. Can you talk about how you stumbled upon it? Um, well, I'm actually working on the product that we're going to be releasing. It's a, it's the structure, uh, story development, story development process, uh, that, that we teach in our class as a standalone. And as I was developing the workbook for it, I was going through and I was looking for, um, you know, some language that helped me think about 
ideas I already had. And so I was, you know, looking at quotes and looking at those different things. And somewhere along the way, I think I was looking up for quotes about getting things done, about being done, about committing to done. And this came up. So I do not know who Bray or Brie Pettis is or Keo Stark. I feel like Keo Stark is like a porn star, but maybe that's somebody else Stark. I don't know how many porn stars you're familiar with because mine is exactly zero. Well, there was somebody with the last name Stark who had some kind of strange first name. And I would, the reason I knew that was because I also had the last name Stark. Yeah, but how many movies are you looking at? I mean, like, how did you, I I don't know. This was like from, from like the 80s. You know, there's probably someone named BJ Powers, but I don't know that because (laughs) I'm just guessing and I've not seen any of it. So I feel like I'm surprised you don't know about this person. But anyway. But anyway. Really? Really? I don't know. Maybe she became a congressperson or something, but that was in Italy, so I don't know. Anyway, but this might be someone else entirely. Let's say it might be. Probably is. Keo Stark. (laughs) The comments made in this (laughs) podcast are not necessarily representative of the thoughts and feelings of all members of this podcast. So the Cult of Dunn Manifesto, hmm. I'm going to read. It's 13. Uh, the website that I found this on said that they'd completed this in 20 minutes. And um, and so I've been reading a lot about time management and thinking about time. And so I'm going to just read these in under... Elizabeth now acquaints herself with two-sided printing. <laughs> So, are you going to read through them? And I'm going to read through them and quickly, we'll and then we'll discuss, in all likelihood, number four, because that is the one that has really profoundly affected me, mm-hmm. and I think some of our students. Here we go. Number one. This is, again, the Cult of Dunn Manifesto. Number one. There are three states of being, not knowing, action, and completion. Love it. Two. Accept that everything is a draft. It helps to get it done. Number three, we don't understand this one, and this also sparked a lot of conversation in our classes. There is no editing stage. <laughs> I'll just a, let you I, I think it. that's a place people get stuck. I think it's a swamp. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's a swamp I'm, I'm in, and mm-hmm. I feel the need to be in, but in a way. And, and also, I think when you're editing, you're editing and then you're writing anew, right? So you're, not ju- you're never sort of just editing. Okay. I don't know. Number four, pretending you know what you're doing is almost the same as knowing what you're doing. So just accept that you don't know what you're doing. No, no. Oh, that you know what you're doing. <laughs> All right, let me just start that over. Yeah, Freudian right slip. Number four, pretending you know what you are doing is almost the same as knowing what you are doing. So just accept that you know what you are doing, even if you don't, and do it. Five, banish procrastination. If you wait more than a week to get an idea done, abandon it. And I think, of course, we want to just, you know. Well, a lot we'll of talk about this in a second. Novels, yeah. so we, might, we might amend that, too. If you take more than a week to get an idea started. Or, you know, anyway, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Number six, the point of being done is not to finish, but to get other things done. Hmm. Number seven, once you're done, you can throw it away. I love that one, actually. Eight. Laugh at perfection. It's boring, and it keeps you from being done. (laughs) Number nine, people without dirty hands are wrong. 
doing something makes you right. This is the second side that baffled Elizabeth initially. Number 12, if you have an idea and publish it on the internet, that counts as a ghost of done. Mm, mysterious. And number 13, done is the engine of more. So, uh, looking back over this and actually having reread this several times now, four does stick out. Um, Tell me why. Well, we, again, that, that whole pretending that you know what you're doing. It's a little like arrogance, right? Like yes. faking arrogance. Yes. Yes. Or magic. Okay. Not faking magic. It's like magic. It's like magic. Um, yeah. And, and um, I also accept that everything is a draft. Um, yeah, everything's a draft. Even the thing you turn into your publisher after you've gotten your galleys and you've corrected Even the things each- that you read out, read from and sign and people yes. take home with them. Yes. Is a draft. Is a draft. Um, I also like uh, the point of being done is not to finish but to get other things done. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really inspiring and um, and so also kind of unzen, right? What do you mean? Well, it's it's so like not in the moment, right? It's like. It's like, I just want to finish this so I can do the next thing. Well, you know, I keep tying this back to Todd Henry, who does the creative something, something. We'll put it in the show notes. <clears throat> he talks about, you know, thinking about your work not as a, an individual piece, but as a body of work. Right. And so the truth is you cannot have a body of work if you keep working at it over, over and over and over. A and finger you- of work. <coughs> I mean, basically... Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, has a variety of iterations. It's the same book, but he adds or he takes away or he... In different published editions? Yes. So if you get the, like, 1861 Leaves of Grass versus, you know, a later edition, it's got different poems or some of the poems are slightly different than they were previously. His body of work is this, this volume that he really... I mean, he did journalism, he did all these other things, but... For the most part, the thing that he really connected with was this single volume that he worked and reworked and published multiple times. Many leaves. Uh, yes, sort of a clump of grass. But uh, so I think the importance of the idea of being to finish is um, is not to, to finish, but to get other to other mm-hmm. things uh, is to decrease the power one given project holds over us as artists. Well, and as I often like to say, I was in this writing group in New York where in order to join, you had to agree to write at least 10 books. And it just took the pressure off. It was never, this is my book. It was, this is my first book or my second book or whatever. So, um, yeah. So so I, I do like that element of it, for sure. Um, and I wonder if the, your Walt Whitman example might also help illuminate, number three, there is no editing stage. Part of that kind of um, public, mm. not perfect. Yes. To reference your old briefly lived website blog, um, you know, there's there's sort of getting it out in the world, and then there are iterations. Well, the funny thing about public not perfect is that I actually got shut down by perfectionism. So, um, <laughs> so I, it's actually perfect, not public. Exactly. That's what happened with that. Or neither, really. Um, yeah, well, I think it's interesting because in reality, it's always a balance, but perfectionism and the fear of being wrong and all the, the things we bring to not finishing are so strong that uh, I think we have to err a little bit on the side of finishing um, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, 
the whole thing now with like startups is a minimum viable product. What's the least you can do? And I think Walt Whitman was doing that. What's the least you can do uh, to make it? Oh my it, god! Leaves of Grass 1.0. Leaves of Grass 1.2. And yeah, because he was doing a minimum viable product, essentially, that this is good enough to go out. But um, if you look instead of like an individual book as being your minimum viable product is your career. And you start with a book is launching your career and you're going to get feedback. Whether it never gets published or not, it's actually part of the process to get the feedback, get the information, and maybe you ditch that draft and you go to a next number next one. seven, right? Once you're done, you can throw it. I love yeah. that because there's a question about the ethics of finishing something, which I, you know, I've heard people talk about like finish everything you do. It's just a really great practice, right? And I and I can see that, especially if you're stopped by perfectionism. Just finish it, finish this so that you can even just throw it away and move on rather than abandon it. And at the same time, like with readers, you know, do you feel like you have to finish a book when you start it? You know, do you feel like you can throw it away? Reading, just even right, reading. Right, there's right? a lot there's of contention kind of, on that. Yeah. So I, I love Well, you could idea. also reverse that. You once know. you throw it away, you can finish. No, once you throw it away, you can be done. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's just, I'm done with that. Then that's a fair enough action. This implies that there's a certain action and you can throw it away afterwards. I like that, though, because I think... Even if you're just like, okay, this, this, there's something about this that isn't working. I'm just going to, like, finish it. Even if it's like I'm just going to write a paragraph to wrap it up or something. Right. But just some commitment to finishing it so that you throw it away. You've learned some extra thing. Mm-hmm. It isn't cult of, you know. Abandon. Abandonment, yes. It's the cult of done. Cult so, yes, fair enough. It's it, it may be that I'm willing to allow this to be wildly imperfect and with that last thing that I can call it done and then I will throw it away. Right. I mean, even if like, say, you know, if, if with a film or something, like you might end up doing a short instead of a thing, but you do something that is like, okay, I did that. It's mm-hmm. done. Yeah. I don't know. Very intriguing. Yeah. So that's why we brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And that was me laughing at perfection. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and trying to be done. Well, I think the, the other thing is just the idea, you know, of that if we keep moving to find the right strategy, we'll get out of that bad feeling of uh, of not knowing, of, of being blind to what it is we're trying to work towards. And there's just a lot of discomfort well, in, and actually, in the artistic process. And I think... There's a lot of discomfort in so many places in our lives. If you're being an entrepreneur, if you're making a parenting. podcast, if you're parenting, there's so many places. And so what we end up doing very often is saying, well, I'm going to read this book about this thing. or I'm going to get, you know, this video about that thing. And the truth is, if we finish something, we actually get more information than if we don't finish it. So if you're going to read the book, stay with the book because you're not going to know the value of that book until you've actually done it. And I think, you know, I, even though I have like a particular kind of brain, I also think that I'm not unusual in that if I find the right answer, or if I find the solution outside of just being here, my discomfort will go away. Mm. And I will know, I will have that confidence that I'm doing the right thing. Right. So, so instead we fake it. And I just want to say, I think it comes back to the, also the Ira Glass thing where he says, you know, as as sort of readers and consumers of things, we're not consumers, that's so capitalist, but you know what I mean, as taker-inners of art 
on Inauguration Day, she does not want to use the word capitalist. <laughs> I don't want to be consumer, seen as consumer, consumer, yeah. Consumer. Um, and uh, but just that, um, he, you know, we are we have a much higher ability to recognize great art than to produce it, and so we see that gap between what we want to be doing and what we're actually doing. And I think I just I think that's kind of um, part of faking arrogance or confidence or whatever, um, you know, thinking that you can do something that's beyond yourself. But then that's what's always so incredible about And you know, that's going. probably what's great about today. Because you can have a model of a person who has absolutely no skill in a particular area who was able. Well, let's not talk about what money does to the whole, to I don't think it was just thing. money. And so, Racism. All right. But we're going to wrap up now. It is time, speaking of the election, this is my favorite segue now, it is time for our Steal This episode. I mean, say, uh, segment. Segment. So, amateur poets borrow. Professional, professional poets steal. What would you like to take and make your own? Um. Well, I think I'm going to actually pick number seven from the... Uh, cult of done manifesto because I have Which a habit. Is, once you're done, you can throw it away. And so I think like applying that to some of my habits of exploring uh, different processes for different things. You know, being productive. I start doing part of it and then it doesn't quite work. I don't understand it. I get stuck, and so then I'm like, and I haven't actually really explored it. And so right now I'm actually in the middle of committing. To a single person, a single process. So you've committed and you're in the middle of going through the process. Of going through the process. And I can feel myself getting wiggly. I'm just getting wiggly mm-hmm. all the time. Maybe this person's got a better, you know, solution for me. Um, but I'm sticking with this one solution. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to plow through it. Not, you know, honestly, I'll be done with it in a month. Right. And so it isn't that amount of time to do it. But to stick with something until it's done to really know if I if I can throw it away, or I can throw away the parts of it that make sense to let go. Once you've hit each note. Yeah, and then I can refine yeah, from there. I love that. And I think I want to actually, I'll also go look at the cult of done here, because one that we didn't really talk about is there are three states of being, not knowing, action, and completion. And for me, it's the permission and the reminder that you're going to move from not knowing into action, not move from not knowing into knowing into action. And so you're not going to take place, you're not going to take action from a place of knowing, of being right, of being perfect, of, you know, you can fake it. (laughs) You can fake it, but also, you know, the world is going to react to you and the actions you take, and you cannot know what those are. So you can't actually ever know, really. Right. Because you, you take an action and there's going to be an equal reaction coming back to you and maybe it's like this well no but it could be like if you look at the process of developing your voice as a writer and you start writing in a very derivative way right and you're like I don't know what I'm doing but I'm going to write and I you know I have this tone in my ear that from reading and so now I'm going to write a story and it sounds a lot like this author I was very excited about and now I've completed the story and so I can move on to the next thing. Now I might be able to recognize it, see that that's mm-hmm. the, the piece of it. But it might also be that turning it in, someone in my workshop says, this completely sounds like a low budget so-and-so, right? 
Or they might say, wow, this is really unique and spectacular, but you don't actually know until you put it in the world. And you might find something else. It might sound like so-and-so, but you might find a story that so-and-so never told, and it's your story, and now you can write it another way Mm -hmm. in another iteration and so on. So um, (laughs) if you have questions for us, you can send them to questions at storymakershow.com. You can find us at storymakershow.com and on iTunes and on Stitcher, and we would love for you to go and give us a review. We are looking for some more reviews to tell the world what this is. Maybe tell us what it is. And so I want to congratulate you because here we are. We're at done. But although, oh, <laughs> that was a nice ending. I want to say one more thing, which is I want to tell people that Sonoma County Writers Camp is open for registration. And At Ellen, SonomaCountyWritersCamp.com. And Ellen Sussman and I uh, did that last year. It was so fantastic, intimate, a way to meet agents and authors and do generative writing workshops with the two of us. And um, that is to say Ellen Sussman and me. So go check that out as well. See, that was me being done. Uh, and you not being done. <laughs> so here we are, and now we're done. Mm-hmm.